Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares reflects on life without Christ. You need to recall the non-Christian hopelessness. Recall that. That really, if you think about non-Christians, here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians, to think of my life alienated from God on the wrong path, might be a good path, everyone's cheering me on, employee of the month, but it's the wrong path. That, he says, being alienated from God is being without Christ, right? And without hope in this world. Hopelessness. Have you recognized the desperation of your situation yet? In church, we often sing about the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. But sometimes we fail to fully understand the hopelessness of our situation without Christ. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares challenges you to recall the moment when you finally reached the proverbial end of your rope and reached up towards your Savior. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. We're learning about true biblical conversion as Pastor Mike Fabares wraps up a message titled, Saul, Fighting God. Number two, let's understand pre-Christian obedience. I you to think about that. Was Judas ever obedient to Christ? Now, you can start to get esoteric and think you're super spiritual. But think, well, yeah, but not really. But really. When Jesus says to Judas, pair up with this guy and go into that village, did he pair up with that guy and go into the village? I'd say that's obedience. If you've heard me talk about this before, you might have heard about an external conformity to Christianity and an internal organic conformity to Christianity. To obey the dictates of Christ because of the external pressure, which can be a lot of things, to fit in, I don't want to displease my parents, I don't want my wife to think I'm, I'm a jerk, whatever your reasons for external, you can do those things that Christ said. I'm going to pray, I'm going to do devotions, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to give my money. Do, oh, okay, well, that's external conformity. And I say it with that kind of tone because I'm like, yeah, even if it's done with a, an, a willingness, there's a sense of, it's what I should do. There's a should and ought, and then there's a want and an organic expression of my love for God. Those are different. There are good motives and there are selfish motives. James chapter 4 says, one of the reasons you ask and don't receive is because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it on your pleasures. So I know that. That's an extreme example of something saying, here is a good deed. It's a good deed, but it's done with an imperfect motive. Matter of fact, it's a bad motive. When Mary took the spikenard and, and poured it out, and Judas stands up and says, don't. Could have been sold for a lot of money, and we can give it to the poor. Everyone believed what he said at the time. So much so did they trust him that no one suspected him at the, at the Last Supper when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And everyone trusted enough for him to be the treasurer of the disciples. But John looks back in retrospect and says, I realize now he used to help himself to the till. No wonder our budget's never balanced because he didn't really care about the poor because I see later in his apostasy, I get what's going on in his heart now. So he puts the pieces together and says, the motive of caring for the poor, it's not really for God. It's not for God completely. And even him pairing up and going into villages and sharing the message of the kingdom because Christ was coming, all his obedience and missionary efforts, not really from a converted heart. I could go 
all morning long with characters from church history that you know. Spurgeon, Augustine, I can go down the list, but the idea of people like the Wesley brothers who were engaging in the work of ministry prior to their conversion. So if you say, well, I've always been a Christian because I've always gone to church and I've always sang the songs and I had a few goosebumps when I sang the songs and I, I learned the verses and I was, I've never, you know, I never, I never had sex before I got married. I never took drugs. I never, I, I came home on time. I was a Christian. I've always been a Christian. You're, you're equating obedience to Christ as like no other things in the, in the equation, just obedience to Christ. I'm obeying Christ. I must have been a Christian. So you've always been a Christian? No, that would be the fallacy of saying conformity to the commands of Christ. That means you're a Christian. Are you tracking with me on this? Even if you leave here going, well, I know I'm a Christian today. I can admit that, that sometime early in my life, I can see there was rebellion against following God. I get that. My heart was not there but I still don't know. I don't know exactly when it was. If you're going to tell me that, I'm just going to say this. Does God know that there was a time? Because the Bible is very clear about conversion, regeneration, justification. It happens as a point in time. There's a time in which you wholeheartedly, as, as Paul puts it to the Romans, you commit yourself to the teaching delivered to us. And it's more than just, I'm going to do it today. It's a whole heart change. Your heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. That happens in a moment of time. It may have been ordained from eternity past, but you, it happens at a moment. So if you say, well, I'm not sure when I got, I was, I was 22 sometime in 20. My t- Great. Do, do you think God knows the minute that you weren't saved and then you were? Okay. So let's just, let's just all agree. You may be fuzzy about it. Maybe because you're so old, you can't think back to it. I don't know. Maybe because you were a church kid like me and like, I don't know, it was hard to see what the change of the motives were. Cause it wasn't like I just, I stopped with my drug route what are you saying? There is no, I just kind of, it was a process for me. Don't tell me that. Because if it's a process for you, it sounds like you are on your own path because Jesus' passes is a point in time. So there's got to be a point in time here. Well, I'm not sure about it. Okay, great. I'm not kicking you out of the church because you don't know the point in time. I've been accused of that recently. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying there is a point in time. We are evangelicals. We believe in a born again, that's what Christ's words, experience that you have a point of conversion. That's what we're here to celebrate is that, and and we learn to value that. So I hope this series helps you kind of figure that out, and I don't want pre-Christian obedience to confuse the matter. And some of us understand what it is to have the change. I was reading the Bible every day before I became a Christian, but then there was the day I became a Christian. I didn't even know what I was doing. I had bad theology all around me, and I thought I was rededicating my life or turning in from my junior varsity to put, get my varsity jacket. I, I thought, I didn't know what it was, so I didn't memorialize it. I didn't put it down in a book. But guess what? I read the Bible the next day from a completely different, at a profound level, completely different reason, completely different motive, completely different experience, because my heart of stone had turned into a heart of flesh. Those were Ezekiel's analogies, God's analogies through Ezekiel. Verse 8, are you still there in Acts 9? Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. To get to the place of seeing Christ is our hope. We have to get to the place of seeing our own hopelessness. See the worth of our salvation, we need to see the worthlessness of everything else. Whether it's going to church with an unregenerate heart, or whether it's living a flagrantly, socially rejectable, illicit life, 
you got to say what I'm doing is not right. It's not going to end well. It is not. It is not what other people have who are saved. I I I, I need God's grace to hear His voice and follow Him. And there should be a sense in which you recognize, I cannot do this. Paul says later in his sanctification in 2 Corinthians 1, the bad things happen even in our sanctification oftentimes so that we would no longer trust in ourselves. Trusting in ourselves is a bad bet. Right? People sing songs about believing in themselves. and say, Oh, that sucks to be you. If that really is what you're doing, right? to believe in yourself is a bad bet because that ends in a place that is not good. But you should say, you know what? I'm done trusting myself. He said, sometimes those bad things happen so that we will, in our sanctification, learn to increasingly trust in Christ. Well, there is a profound categorical shift where non-Christians get to the place of saying, I can't trust in myself. Because you ask them, are you a good person? Yes. Are you going to heaven? Yes. Then you ask them, as Kennedy taught us in the EE program, why would you be accepting it? Well, if you say to God, if God says to you, why should I let you? What are you going to say to God? If you start saying, well, look at what I've done, well, then you know that you have trusted in yourself. If you think about, you know, I was good, I was generous, I didn't cheat, I didn't steal, never cussed anybody out, right? So I, I should get to heaven. The whole point of Paul's testimony to the Philippians is that I was trusting in myself and my own righteousness, and now I'm going to trust in Christ completely. One thing that helps is having to be led into town as a blind man. You can't even trust in yourself to get into town. You're never going to trust yourself to get into heaven. You got to stop it. So God puts this exclamation point on his hopelessness and his helplessness and gets him to the place of real conversion. Three days, he feels such despondency and, and, and self-reflection. We can only imagine, if you want to psychoanalyze Paul at this point, I'm not sure what all for those three days, but he didn't even eat. I mean, we don't have the command from God, don't eat, don't see, and don't eat. It, no, it's like reflexive. I just can't. I'm realizing my life has been all wrong. I've been saying Christ is dead. He's alive. I've been saying these people are wrong. I think they're right. And he went from the intellectual convincing, which took place on the road to Damascus, to being in Damascus at Ananias' house on Straight Street saying, you know what? I now need to call on the name of the Lord. And for some of you, you can't clarify your testimony because you think that when you were intellectually convinced and things made sense, well, that must have been a Christian, but you need to know it's more than understanding with the mental assent, because as James says, even the demons have their theology, right? It's about you knowing what it is to put your faith in Christ. And that is the shift that in our own hearts, we know comes through the portal of hopelessness. Put it down this way for taking notes. You need to recall the non-Christian hopelessness. Recall that, that really, if you think about non-Christians, here's how Paul puts it, in Ephesians, to think of my life alienated from God on the wrong path, might be a good path, everyone's cheering me on, employee of the month, but it's the wrong path. That, he says, being alienated from God is being without Christ, right, and without hope in this world. Hopelessness. It should feel and look like this. And if you have a testimony, you're going to think back to this. Was I led up to real conversion? There was a period of me being intellectually convinced, and then there was that sense of, wow, I've got to respond to this. It ought to look like one of the Psalms. Let me give you a Psalm, Psalm 116. Let's turn there real quick. Psalm 116. This is where we get. And while God didn't 
use blindness in your life. Perhaps he did. I don't know, someone that I'm speaking to. But maybe he did use some physical ailment. It's funny how when we are getting rolled in on a gurney into ER, you start praying a little differently about your mortality and your dependence upon God and this fear grips you. Circumstances have a way of doing that. And I don't know what the circumstances were, but regardless of whether it happened without any physical ailment in your life or any threat or any divorce or any bankruptcy, there was that sense in which God convinced you that without Christ being your savior, you're in in big trouble. And that's what the first few verses here in Psalm 116 illustrate so well. Look at the joy. This is the whole goal of the series, although it may defy what you've heard so far, is to be excited. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Well, I can say it like that because I want to emphasize in the first time I read that verse, that great sense of, wow, I'm so glad I love God because of what he's done. But let me read it again. I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. There's a strong verb there. I mean, I was crying out for mercy. What is mercy? I know I deserve punishment. I know I deserve to be castigated, to be accused, to be sent into outer darkness. Speaking of blindness, right? Great symbol of that. But I love the Lord. Why? Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I'm going to call him as long as I live. I'm so excited about my Christian life to to view it from a New Testament perspective because of my salvation. That's a great thing. But here's what I felt. The snares of death, they encompassed me. Man, I had the weight of that. I felt that. The pangs of Sheol, right? The grave, they laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. I pray, that's a strong word too. I I plead, I want, I I, I beseech you. Paul is having this experience for three days. The distress, I was wrong. I'm on the wrong path. The guy's on the way are right. I need to call on the name of the Lord, which is exactly what Ananias is going to tell him to do. And then we value that. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I'm ready to just to say, I got nothing now. When I was brought low, he saved me. I don't know if you were to write your testimony out, and let's do the long version. You're going to write a book. (laughs) I don't know who's going to read our stories, right? We're just normal people, but let's just say we're going to write a book about our conversion. You, I don't know what the circumstances that are attendant to that are, but there has to be that, that. That's a component part of this thing we're celebrating, our testimony of conversion, that we were like, I needed the mercy of God. I knew in my distress, the distress of my soul, I got to have Christ. If if, if you've not had that experience, again, I'm talking to people primarily that I assume have, but if you haven't, that's what real Christianity does to you. It confronts you with the truth. You get intellectually convinced. You now say, I got to do what Christ says. And then doing that, you say, okay, I got a heart problem, a moral problem. I need to call out to God. And the light darkness here is so good, he could have done a lot of things. Because he said, Paul, you're going to walk with a limp. They're going to have to drag you into town. No, no, you're going to be blinded. Such a great picture. And it's used throughout the scripture. Light, truth, darkness, right? Error. Light, God, darkness, life without God. Judgment, outer darkness. Judgment on Egypt, darkness. I don't love it. It's it's dramatic the way it's presented. A darkness in Exodus, it says, chapter 10, that could be felt. It's horrible. 
Christ dies in judgment, and it's dark from noon to three, darkness. See, but we're celebrating the fact that we're not in darkness anymore. Because of the darkness of Christ, we get brought into light. We get transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, out of the domain. I love the way it's translated in a lot of translations. The domain of darkness, to quote Colossians 1. That transfer, that's what I want to spend the next nine weeks getting excited about. We've been transferred out of that, and we have hope. It's the most important thing. You're sick? Cancer? Going to die soon? Spouse left you? Right? Death in your family? Bankruptcy? The world's out of control? You hate life? Hey, are you saved? Do you have a testimony? Are you converted? To get that out, we've got we to celebrate that. One of the passages I'm going to take you to in your small groups this week is John 9. And while I only make you read the punchline to the passage in John 9, it'd be great for you to prepare for your small groups by reading the whole chapter. Man, cured of blindness by Christ, miraculous curing of, of blindness. He then turns to the Pharisees, of which Paul was one. I'm not saying he was there at the time. And he says, you guys think you see, but I've come into the world for judgment. What is that? To change things. That those who think they see can understand that they're blind. And that those who are blind, and I hope it can work with those same people, they think they see, but they know they're blind, can now become seeing. Like those two men in Luke that go up to the temple to pray, and one thinks he sees. I got it. It's okay. I'm fine. I'm glad I'm not like this guy, a tax collector, who says, I'm blind. He beats his chest. He says, I just need the mercy of God. And Jesus asked the question, which one do you think went home justified? I'll tell you who. The guy who knew he was blind. That's the hopelessness of it all. That hopelessness breaks forth into, I love the Lord because he answered my plea for mercy. Really difficult period of my ministry life years and years ago. I mean, call it a dark time, I suppose. I said, I need a hobby. <laughs> if you know me, I'm not great at hobbies, but I, I thought, I, I don't know why. Some, because I don't remember what the attendant circumstances were, but something, I'm just, I, I'm going to, I know, don't laugh at me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start collecting coins. So I said, I'm going to collect coins. So I went on eBay and I did my thing and I spent way too much money in like a six-month period buying coins. And, and it's one thing to buy coins that, you know, like this is a rare, you know, whatever dime from whenever, Buffalo headquarters, whatever. Those didn't interest me as much as the coins that depicted things, either ones representative of, of like New Testament times or Old Testament times. And I got a few of those. They were too expensive out of my price range, but those were super fascinating. I read about them and I bought some, but I liked the coins like that, that had, uh, of course, that, that had preachers on them, right? They were, you get out, there's Calvin coins and Spurgeon coins, and I've got George Whitfield coins, just, it, just cool coins. Well, life started to pick up again, and I'm like, okay, well, I got no time for coin collecting. So I, I slowly, as I collected these over a six-month period, I kind of put them in boxes and because I have a safe, not that I have anything worthy of putting in it, but I, I put everything in the safe. I mean, that was a long time ago, over a decade ago. And I started thinking, I came across something and I was trying to buy something and I saw a coin. It was a coin that made me think of the coin that, that I bought that was like it. And I thought, I bought a bunch of coins back in the day. Well, I've had no time to think about the coin collection I have, but I thought, I, I'm going to go through those coins. Before I even went through them, I knew I had enough cool coins in there that I went on Amazon that night and I bought a coin display case. Talk about a coin nerd. 
you know, just a case that was about like this glass case and these places you put the coins. And I bought it because I thought, I ain't got enough cool coins. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to display these. Not that anyone else is probably interested in seeing them. Now you're going to want to see them, a couple of you. And I went through my coins a little at a time and I put those in this display case and I put them on my, on my shelf. I'd forgotten how many cool coins I had. And I don't even have, I mean, I... I don't want to buy two cases and be a super nerd. So I just, I have one. I'll have to switch them out. As time goes. I thought, how cool that these coins that have not seen the light of day for years and years, I now, literally, I put them by where I study. I get to see them and enjoy them every day. And until someone comes to my office and steals them, I, I get to have the experience of something that, for me at least, semi-valuable that are super cool. The whole point of this series is for you to see what a cool thing it is. That's an understatement. That you have been redeemed by something more precious than silver and gold, by the blood of Christ, and that on a day he washed you clean. Your testimony is to be put on display. I want it out of the drawer, out of the safe. I want it in your mind. I want it in your mouth. I want you to tell your story. I want you to get excited about it. I want you to rewrite history, but I want you to talk as you identify the waywardness of the rebellion of your pre-Christian life that you understand that there was this process perhaps of coming to understand what Christ is and how you ought to respond to him, but then there was that change that came on the heels of the hopelessness of knowing without Christ, alienated from him in this world, you had no hope. And that's just the foundation. Part one of four within our 10-part series of God's work with Saul of Tarsus. But as we continue in our series learning about the great conversion of Paul, I hope that you pull out Put on a shelf somewhere where you see it every day. The amazing, valuable, most important, significant, consequential thing about you. You got pictures of your family up? Great. This is even more important. You got a business card holder in your desk? This is even more important. Your salvation in Christ. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares here on Focal Point and the conclusion of a message called Saul Fighting God. It's part of a sermon series titled Amazing Conversions that will continue throughout this month. And you can access the complete uncut version of this series on the Focal Point app and online at focalpointradio.org. Well, Pastor Mike never sugarcoats the Bible, and he doesn't try to soften the blow as we face up to the reality that at one time we were all sinners, without hope, in need of a Savior. But Jesus changes everything, and this is a true lived experience replayed over and over again in the lives of men and women like Saul of Tarsus who encounter the living Christ. So to enrich your faith and to help you dig deeper into some of the remarkable conversion stories of the Bible, Pastor Mike has selected an excellent book to go along with our current series. It's called Men Who Met God by A.W. Tozer. Pastor Tozer's classic teaching, featuring the stories of biblical figures who had the tremendous experience of walking and communing with God, have been collected together into one remarkable book. Request your copy of Men Who Met God when you make a generous gift to Focal Point this month. Get in touch by calling 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. Or, if you prefer, write to us at Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
Now, if you're not quite ready to give just yet and you've never contacted us before, please get in touch today and we'll gladly send you a helpful pamphlet about the 12 disciples. These were 12 regular men whose lives were changed when they accepted the invitation to follow Jesus. Request your copy when you call 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. Well, many church traditions observe a season of fasting and penance leading up to Easter. But where did this practice come from? And is it something all Christians should do? Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you back to listen tomorrow when Pastor Mike Fabares shares his insights into the facts surrounding the Lenten season. That's coming up on Ask Pastor Mike, Friday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. Ever wish you could corner your pastor and challenge him with your toughest questions about the Bible, about faith? Well, now you can. Send me your questions. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click on Ask Pastor Mike. Or send me a note on facebook.com slash pastormike or twitter.com slash pastormike. I can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.